0: Chapter 17 of Countess Erika's Apprenticeship This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Vinay Mala Countess Erika's Apprenticeship by Osip Shubin Translated by Annie Sleevister. Chapter 17 the princess dorothea was pacing her cello restlessly to and fro from time to time she gazed out of the window into the dreary berlin march weather upon the heaps of dirty snow shoveled up on each side of the street and slowly melting beneath the falling rain the princess was annoyed she had been left out in the invitation to a court ball usually she would have ascribed the omission to an oversight of the authorities but today the matter disturbed her instead of an oversight she suspected the omission to have been an intentional slight and her steps as she walked to and fro were short and impatient why were they so frightfully moral in berlin so aggressively moral she asked herself everywhere else people might do as they chose if only appearances were preserved what had she done after all Long ago in Florence, Faisemental had explained to her that marriage, as arranged in civilized countries, was entirely unnatural. The princess, still pure in spite of the degradation about her, had laughed aloud at the philosophic view thus advanced by her companion and guide. Years afterwards, she had recalled this theory that it might serve to justify herself to herself. And lately, only yesterday, Fitzmantel, who was established in Berlin and gave music lessons in the most aristocratic circles, had enunciated the same views at a breakfast to which Dorothea had invited her, and the princess had contradicted her positively, had been rude to her, had nearly turned her out of doors, but at the last moment had apologized almost humbly and had finally dismissed her with a handsome present. She had suspected behind Feismantel's assertion of her philosophic view a mean attempt to ingratiate herself with her hostess. As if Feistmantel could suspect anything. No human being can suspect anything, she repeated several times. And after all, there is scarcely a woman, beautiful and admired, who is not worse than I. In the midst of all her superficiality and moral recklessness, She had always been characterized by a certain frankness, which at times had passed the bounds of decorum. Now she writhed under a burden of hypocrisy, which weighed mostly heavily upon her. And why was this so? It had all been the gradual result of the tedium of the life she led. A man more chorus and rough than any of her other admirers had paid court to her in a way that flattered her vanity. He amused her, he brought some variety into her life, his lavishness was astounding. Once when he had lost a wager to her, he brought her a diamond necklace in an ester egg. She knew that this was wrong, but she had been wont as a girl to accept presents from men, and then she had an almost morbid delight in diamonds. And what stones these were, a chain of dewdrops glittering in the morning sun and he had so careless a way of throwing the costly gift into her lap as if it had been the merest trifle. She could not resist wearing the necklace once at the next court ball, explaining to her husband, who understood nothing of such things, that she had purchased it for a mere song at a sale of old jewellery. She intended to return it, but she did not return it. From that moment, he had her in his power he lured her on as a serpent lures a bird extorting from her one innocent concession after another until one day good god if she could but obliterate the memory of that day to call the torment which she suffered from that time stings of conscience would be to invest it with ideality no she felt no stings of conscience her moral sense was entirely blunted but she was enraged with herself for having fallen into the snare her pride was humbled in the dust and she was in mortal dread of discovery she was a coward to the core what would she not have given to be free she would have broken with her lover ten times but that she feared him more than she did her husband he was a russian fabulously wealthy and notorious in the parisian demimonde which he habitually frequented Orbanov was his name, and outside of his own country he was credited with princely rank to which he had no title. A man with no moral sense, brutal on occasion, with no idea of the laws of honour prevailing in Western Europe, but of an undoubted physical courage which helped him to maintain his present position. Princess Dorothea was convinced that should she break with him, he would commit some reckless impossible crime. Oh, if he would only release her. She began to build castles in the air. Never, never again would she be concerned in such an adventure. All the romances that she had read were lies. There was nothing in the world more hateful than just this. Only once in her life had she been conscious of any real preference for a man and that had been for her cousin Helme. Now, of all men, her own clumsy, thoroughly honourable, and intensely good-natured husband was the dearest. He was at present on his estate in Silesia, where he was much happier than in the society of the capital. Dorothea had made him so uncomfortable in Berlin that he always stayed as long as possible in Silesia. Today, she longed for him. She wanted him to take her on his knee and soothe her like a tired child and then to have him carry her in his strong arms down the broad staircase of his old castle in Kosnitz, as he used to do when they were first married. Yes, she longed for his strong sporting arm. Ah, if she were only free. She would turn her back on Berlin and go with him to Kosnitz. She positively hungered for Kosnitz. For the odor of stone and whitewash in the broad corridors, for the airy bare rooms, for the farmyard with the brown farm buildings, how picturesque it must all look now in the snow, for the snow was still deep in Silesia, they would go slaying, oh how delicious it would be to rush along warmly wrapped up with only her face exposed to the fresh wintry breeze. The sleigh bells ringing merrily, the horses mad with their exciting gallop, the snow-clad forest gleaming silvery white around them. And how delicious would be the supper when they got home. She would have done with all fashionable division of the day. They would dine at one and she would have potatoes in their skins at supper time. She had not had them since she was a child. And black bread and sour milk. How she liked sour milk! One hope she had. Was it not Orbanov whom she had seen last night in the background of the box of a young actress? It was not his habit to conceal himself on such occasions. Probably he had been thus discreet on her account. An idea suddenly occurred to her. What an opportunity this might afford to her to recover her freedom. All she had to do was to feign furious jealousy and break with her dangerous lover without wounding his vanity on the instant she felt relieved and even gay in the light of this hope the clock struck five the hour of her appointment with orbanov without ringing for her maid she dressed herself in the plainest of walking costumes and left the house she walked for some distance then hired a droschke and was driven to a shop in portstam street where she dismissed the vehicle bought some trifle and walked on still farther before hiring another conveyance. at about eight o'clock of the same day goswin von who had lately been transferred to berlin where he was acting as a adjutant to an exalted personage issued from the low door of a small house in a side street where he had attended the baptism of the first-born son of one of his early friends a young fellow of decided talent who had married a girl without a fortune and who did not at all regret his choice the home was modest enough but was so unmistakably the abode of the truest happiness that Sido could not but envy his friend his lot in life how pleasant it had all been he lighted a cigar but held it idly between his fingers without smoking it and reflected upon his own requirements in a wife requirements which one woman alone could fulfil and she could he forget his pride and try his fortune once more his heart throbbed no under the circumstances he could not he never could forget that he had been taunted with erika's wealth Even if he could win her love, their marriage would begin with a discord. If she were but poor, the blood tingled rapturously in his veins at the thought of how, if trial or misfortune should befall her, he might take her to his arms and soothe and cheer her, making her rich with his devotion and tenderness. He suddenly stood still, as if some obstacle lay in his path. Had he really been capable of selfishly invoking trouble and trial upon Erika's head? He looked about him like one awaking from a dream. Just at his elbow, a young woman glided out of a large house with several doors. He scarcely noticed her at first, but all at once he drew a long breath. How strange that he should perceive that peculiar fragrance, the rare perfume used by his sister-in-law, Dorothea. He could have sworn that Dorothea was near. He looked around. There was no one to be seen save the girl who had just slipped by him. A poorly clad girl carrying a bundle. He had not fairly looked at her before. But now, it was strange. In the distance, she resembled his sister-in-law. It was certainly she. He was on the point of hurrying after her to make sure but second thoughts told him that it really mattered nothing to him whether it were she or not. It was not his part to play the spy upon her. He turned and walked back in the opposite direction that he might not see her. As he passed the house whence she had come, a man muffled in furs issued from the same doorway. The two men looked each other in the face. Goswin recognized Orbanov. For a moment, each maintained what seemed an embarrassed silence. The Russian was the first to recover himself. bon Bonsuo, he exclaimed with great cordiality. amate Amatepa Goswin touched his cap and passed on. He no longer doubted. The next morning Dorothea Fonsido awaked after a sound refreshing sleep, with a very light heart. She was free. All had gone well. She had first regaled Orbanov with a frightfully jealous scene to spare his vanity, but in the end, they had resolved upon a separation, Allah Mabel, and the princess Dorothea had then made merry, declaring that their love should have a gay funeral, whereupon she had partaken of the champagne supper that had been prepared for her and chatted gaily with Orbanov. Had listened to his stories and they had parted forever with a laugh. Now she was sitting by the fire in her dressing room, comfortably ensconced in an armchair, dressed in a grey dressing gown, trimmed with fur, looking excessively pretty, and sipping chocolate from an exquisite cup of Berlin porcelain. Thank God it is over, she said to herself again and again. But superficial as she was, she could not quite convince herself that her relations with Orbanov were of no more consequence than a bad dream. She felt no remorse, but a gnawing discontent. She would have given much to be able to obliterate her worse than folly. She sighed, then she yawned. She still longed for husband and cosnets. She would leave Berlin this very evening for Sleza and surprise him. How delighted he would be! She clapped her hands like a child. Suddenly, it was intolerable. Again, she was conscious of that gnawing discontent. Could she never forget? And all for what she had never cared for in the least? She thrust both her hands among her short curls and began to sob violently. Just then, the door of the room opened. A tall, broad-shouldered man with a kindly, florid face entered. She looked up, startled as by a thunderclap. The new arrival gazed at her tearful face and, hastening towards her, exclaimed, My dear little Thea, what in heaven's name is the matter? She clasped her arms about his neck as she had never done before. He pressed his lips to hers. Goswin was sitting at his writing table, an enormous piece of furniture somewhat in disarray, trying to read, but it would not do and at last he gave it up. He was distressed, disgusted beyond measure at his discovery with regard to Dorothea. The cedos had hitherto prided themselves upon the purity of their women as upon the honor of their men. Nothing like that which he had discovered had ever happened in the family. He had suspected the mischief before. Since yesterday he had been sure. Must he look calmly on? What else could he do? To open his brother's eyes to play the accuser was impossible. Yes, he must look on calmly. He clenched his fist. At that moment, he heard a familiar deep voice outside the room, questioning his servant. Otto, what is he doing in Berlin? He asked himself. And he seems in a merry mood. He sprang up. The door opened and Otto rushed in, rough clumsy as usual, but beaming with happiness. He laid his broad hand upon his brother's shoulder and cried, How are you, old fellow? Why you look down in the dumps? Anything gone wrong? Nothing, Goswin declared, doing his best to look delighted. Is everything all right? Everything. That's as it should be. I suppose you are surprised to see me drop down from the skies in this fashion. I am indeed. "'Tis quite a story, but I say, Goss, how comfortable you are here!' And he began to stride to and fro in the bachelor apartment, although you don't waste much time or money in decoration. Old fellow, not a pretty woman on the walls. Hm. my room looked rather different in my bachelor days. What have you done with your gallery of beauties, Goss? I bequeathed all my youthful follies to my cousin Brock, who got his luteancy six weeks ago, said Goswin, to whom his brother's chatter was especially distasteful today. Hmm, hmm, you are right. You are getting quite too old for such nonsense. And Otto stopped to examine two or three photographs that adorned his brother's writing table. That's a capital picture of old Countess Lentoff, he exclaimed. Capital. Here is our father when he was young. I look like him. And here is Uncle Goswin, our famous hero, killed in a duel at 30 years of age. They say old Countess Landorf was in love with him, as if she could ever have been in love. And you look like him. Our mother always said so. Oh, here is our mother. He took the faded picture in its old-fashioned frame to the window to examine it. This is the best picture there is of her, he said. Think of your ever being that pretty little rogue in a white frock in her arms, and I, that boy in breeches by her side. Comical, but very attractive. Such a picture of a young mother with her children. How she clasps you in her arms, she always loved you best. Where did you get this picture? My mother gave it to me when I was quite young. She brought it to me when she came to see me in my first garrison. Shortly before her death, said Goswell. I remember, you had been wounded in your first duel. Yes, she came to nurse me. Ah, you have a deal on your conscience. No one would believe you were worse than I. But with a look at the picture, I would give a great deal for such a little fellow as that. And he put the picture back in its place with a care that was unlike him and that touched Goswell with his usual want of tact otto proceeded to efface the pleasant impression he had produced have you no picture of the land of girl he asked looking round the room i may have one somewhere goswin replied evasively indeed he had a charming picture of her in the first bloom of her maiden loveliness but he kept it behind lock and key that no profane eye might rest upon his treasure what a tone you take otto rejoined Why? She was a flame of yours. A capital girl, only rather too full of crochets. She was always a little too high up in the sky for me. But she would have suited you. I cannot understand why you did not seize your chance. Now you are going too far, Goswin said with some irritation. Do not pretend that you do not know that Erika Landoff rejected me. What? exclaimed Otto in some dismay. True, I remember hearing something of the kind, but that was a hundred years ago. Forgive me, Goss, the know of a girl of 18 who looks at one as the young countess looked at you ought not to be taken seriously. Why don't you try your luck a second time? You cannot attach any importance to that intermezzo with the Englishman. Why, you are made for each other, and she is quite wealthy too otto for god's sake stop marching up and down the room like a lion in a cage cried goswin unable to bear it any longer do sit down like a reasonable creature and tell me how you come to appear so unexpectedly in berlin otto lit a cigar and obediently seated himself in an armchair opposite his brother tis quite a story he began just as he had a quarter of an hour before you have told me that already now don't be so impatient i know i am rather slow at explanations you see goss of late matters have not gone quite right between thea and myself there is sure to be fault on both sides in such cases i could not be satisfied with the stupid life here in town and she did not care for Silesia. so we agreed that i should stay at home while well, she diverted herself for a while in town, and perhaps she would come back to me and be more contented in the end. I know that certain people disapproved of my course, but I had my reasons. There's no good in fretting a nervous horse. Better give it the rein. But the time seemed long to me. She wrote so seldom and her letters were so incoherent. In short, he suddenly began to be embarrassed. I got some foolish notions into my head. And so, without letting her know, I appeared in Burling this morning. And how do you think I found poor Thea? Sitting crying by the fire. Just think of it, goss. Of course, I was frightened and did all that I could to comfort her. And when she was calm, I asked her what was the matter. Homesickness, goss. Yes, a longing for the old home and for the clumsy bear who is, after all, nearer to her than any other human being. She reproached me for neglecting her, said I had not even expressed a wish in my letters to see her, and she was just on the point of starting for Kosnitz, and she was jealous too, poor little goose. In short, there were all sorts of a misunderstanding, and the end of it all was that she begged me, begged me like a child, to carry her back to Kosnitz. I wish you could have heard her describe our life together there. She would not hear of my going a few days before to make ready for her, but clung to me as if we had been but just married. What is the matter with you, Goss? For his brother had walked to a window, where he stood with his back turned to Otto, looking out. What could be the matter? Gosswin forced himself to reply. Then why do you stand looking out of the window as if you took not the least interest in what I am telling you? Forgive me there is a crowd in the street about a horse that has fallen down very well if every broken-down hack in the street can interest you more than what is next my heart there is no use in my talking but i know what it is you were always unjust to thea you never understood her adieu and otto took his hat and walked towards the door goswin conquered himself what affair was it of his if his brother was happy in an illusion He ought to do all that he could to prevent his eyes from being opened. He laid his hand upon Otto's arm and said kindly, Forgive me, Otto. You must not take it ill if such a confirmed old bachelor as I does not share as he should in your happiness. It all seems so foreign to such a life as mine. Otto's brow cleared. I was silly, he confessed. I ought not to have been so irritable. Poor boss. But indeed, I should rejoice from my heart if you could marry. There is nothing like it in the world. You need not from. I never will mention the subject to anyone else. Yes, yes, Otto. And when are you going home? Tomorrow. We are going to spend a few weeks at Cosnits, and then we are to take a trip together. I came to ask you if you would not lunch with us today, that we might see something of you in comfort this room of yours is decidedly cold do you never have it any warmer dorothy especially begs you to come at one o'clock indeed does dorothy want me cause i will come i have one or two things to attend to but i will be with you in half an hour and the brothers parted a few hours have passed Goswin had appeared punctually at lunch and had done his best not to be a spoilsport. They were now sitting by the fire in the little saloon in which they had taken coffee, Goswin and his brother. The early twilight began to make itself felt, but no object was as yet indistinct. Dorothea had gone out to inform her Aunt Brock of her projected departure and to ask her to make a few farewell calls for her. She had met Coswin with such gay indifference that he had been puzzled indeed and had finally begun to believe that he had been mistaken, that the person whom he had disposed to be Dorothea Sido was not she at all. Something had happened in her life, however, of that he was convinced. Never had Dorothea been so simply charming. She gave him her hand in token of reconciliation. Alluded not without regret, to her defective education, told an anecdote or two with much grace and in a softened tone of voice, and clung to Otto like an ailing child. We are going to begin all over again, all over again, she repeated, adding, and when Goss has forgotten what a bad creature I used to be, and that he could not bear me, he will come and see us at Cosnets, won't you, Goss? You shall see how pleasant I will make it for you there. You have absolutely hated me. Or perhaps you thought me not worth hating. You only detested me as one detests a caterpillar or a spider. I confess I hated you. I always felt as if I ought to be ashamed in your presence. And that is not a pleasant sensation. She laughed the old giggling silvery laugh. But there was a pathetic tone in it as she brushed away the tears from her eyes and left the room to return in a few moments, fresh and smiling, equipped for her walk. She kissed her husband by way of farewell and held out her hand to Goswin. Shall I find you here when I return, Gos?" She asked just before the door closed behind her. There is no one like her, murmured Otto, and to think that I could ever fancy a bachelor existence, a pleasant one. But all is different now. The good fellow's eyes were moist as he passed his hand over them. Shortly afterwards, they heard a ring at the outside door. Some visitor, the deuce, growled Otto. Goswell looked about for his sabre, which he had stood in a corner. But it was no visitor. Dorothea's maid entered. A package has come for Her Excellency, she announced. Perhaps the her baron will sign the receipt. Give it to me, Jenny. Sido signed it and then said, and give me the package. I will hand it to your mistress. The maid gave it to him. It was a thick sealed envelope. A dreadful suspicion flashed upon Goswin's mind. In an instant, he guessed the truth. What if it should occur to his brother to open the envelope? Apparently, he had no thought of doing so. He simply laid it upon Dorothea's writing table, a pretty, useless piece of furniture, much carved and decorated. Goswin felt relieved. He suddenly became garrulous, talked of the latest political complication, told the last story of the intense piety of the Countess Walderssee as narrated by the prince at a recent supper party, and described the four magnificent horses sent by the Sultan to the Emperor. Otto sat with his back to the ominous packet. It did not escape Goswin. That he became more monosyllabic and did not show much interest in his brother's conversation. If she would only return, Goswin thought to himself. He was convinced that the packet contained Dorothea's letters to Orbanov. He had not been mistaken the previous evening. It had been Dorothea who had passed him. Evidently returning to her home from her last interview. The affair, odious as it was, was at an end. Dorothea was relieved that it was so she was not fitted to engage in a dangerous intrigue suddenly otto began to sniff as if perceiving some odour in the air tis odd he said don't you perceive a peculiar fragrance if it were not too silly i should say that it smells like Dorothea." that would not be odd his brother rejoined since she left the room only half an hour ago but i did not perceive it before otto said and then with sudden irritability Turning towards the writing table, he added, "It is that confounded packet. It probably contains something of Dorothea's, which she has accidentally left at a friend's." But Otto had taken the packet from the table. He turned it over. "I know the seal—a die with the motto, Warbunk. It is Orbanov's seal." His breath came quick. "What can Orbanov have sent her? Probably some political treatise." I do not see how it can interest you, said Goswin. Once more Otto turned the packet over in his hands. He seemed about to lay it down on the writing table again, then, at the last moment, before Goswin could bethink himself, he opened it hastily. About a dozen short notes in Dorothea's childish handwriting fell out. Then a note of enboss. Otto's eyes were riveted upon it with a glassy stare he could not yet comprehend. Then, with a sudden cry, he crushed the note together, tossed it to Goswin, and buried his face in his hands. A dull, brooding silence followed. Goswin held the note in his hand, without reading it. It was not for him to pry curiously into his brother's anguish and disgrace. After a while, Otto raised his head. What have you to say? he exclaimed bitterly. That such another idiot as I does not live upon the earth." say it ah you have not read the note goswin why do you look at me so could you have known oh my god my god the strong man buried his face in his hands again and sobbed hoarsely. goswin was terribly distressed he had never known his brother to weep since his childhood he would far rather have had him fall into a fury but no he was weeping the sense of disgrace was drowned in agony Before long, he collected himself, ashamed of his weakness, and there was the quiet of despair in the face he lifted to Goswin. You knew it. Since when? I know nothing, Goswin replied. No, you know nothing? Good God, whoever knows anything in such affairs. But you suspected, did you not? Goswin was silent. Perhaps you can tell me how many people in Berlin suspected it. Goswin bit his lip. What reply could he make? After a while, he began, Otto, I would have given anything in the world to prevent you from learning it. Indeed? Otto interrupted him. You would have let me go through life, grinning amiably, ridiculously with a stain on my name at which people would point contemptuously, and you never would have told me of that stain, Goswin? He started up. Goswin also arose and the brothers confronted each other beside the hearth, upon which the fire had fallen into glowing embers and ashes. I ought certainly to have given Dorothea opportunity to expiate her fault. She was in the right path, said Goswin. The result of her frivolity had caused her a panic of terror. The entire affair had been a burden to her from the beginning. As you can see by her relief, that it is at an end. One must take her as she is. All this has less significance for Dorothea than for any other woman whom I know. It has not entered into her soul. It has left nothing behind it but a horror of it all from beginning to end. Otto looked suspiciously at his brother. Was this Goswin who talked thus? Goswin the strict. Goswin so uncompromising where honor was concerned. Yes, it was Goswin. There was no denying it. And you think that I should... "'I should forgive?' murmured Otto hoarsely, as if ashamed to utter the words. "'If you can so far conquer yourself.' Otto stooped and picked up the letters that had fallen upon the floor. He glanced through one of them. "'There is not much tenderness in these lines, I must say,' and he dropped at his side the hand holding the packet. "'One piece of advice I must give you,' said Goswin, with the coldness in his tone which he could not quite disguise." If you forgive, you must have the strength of soul to forgive absolutely. If you forgive, throw those letters into the fire. Dorothea must never learn that you know anything. Yes, Otto said dully. Suddenly he went close to Goswin and looking him full in the eye, said between his teeth, Would you forgive? Goswin stared. He had no answer ready. I, I never should have married Dorothea, he said evasively. I understand, Otto said in the same horrid whisper. You never would have forgiven, but it is all right for stupid Otto. Again there was a distressing pause. Otto had turned away from his brother with an inarticulate exclamation of pain. Goswin gave him some moments in which to recover himself. Then laying his hand on his brother's arm, he said, Do not take it so ill of me, Otto. I have no doubt I talk foolishly. I cannot decide. I am confused. No wonder, groaned Otto. The position is a novel one for you. There has never been anything like it in our family. Oh God, he stuck his forehead with his clenched fist. I cannot believe it. I used to be jealous at times, but of no special person. Never, never could I have believed. Never. Otto, what? Since you cannot bring yourself to forgive, since I cannot bring myself to forgive, Otto repeated with bowed head. You must at least look the matter boldly in the face and decide what to do. Decide what to do? Are you going to procure a divorce? Otto stood motionless. Goswin laid his hand upon his shoulder. Otto shrank from his touch. Leave me, Gos. he gasped. I beg you, go. The clock on Dorothea's writing table struck. The tone was almost like that of Dorothea's voice. Goswell looked round. Six o'clock. At seven, he was invited to dine with a great personage, an invitation tantamount to a command. He could not be absent. It was high time for him to go home to dress, but he could not bear to leave Otto alone. I must go, he said, but I entreat you to come with me. You must not see Dorothea just now, and the fresh air will do you good and clear your thoughts. Why should they be clearer than they are? Otto said wearily and with intense bitterness. I see more than you think. But go, go. In a few minutes she will be here, and it would be more terrible to me than I can tell you to see her before you. No need to say more. I know that you will stand by me through thick and thin. There, give me your hand. I will do nothing unworthy of us. I promise you. Now go goswin had gone but dorothea had not yet returned otto sat alone beside the dying fire he could not comprehend what had befallen him he must rid himself of this terrible oppression but how some way must be found some solution of the problem he sought for it in vain forgive the word rang in his ears and his cheeks burned. how had goswin dared to suggest such a thing no it was impossible be divorced have her name dragged in the mire and his shame published in all the newspapers he stamped his foot no no what then he could challenge orbanov and set dorothea adrift in the world a wife not divorced but separated from her husband this was what the world would expect of him he shivered as with fever send her adrift into the world without protection without sport without moral strength Beautiful as she was, expose her to insult from women, to sneering homage from men. She would sink to the lowest depths, not from depravity, but from despair. He wiped the moisture from his forehead. That would be the correct thing to do. Only suddenly a sound that was half laughter, half sob burst from his lips. He knew perfectly well, that while she lived, sooner or later, the moment would come when he could no longer endure life without her. And then, then he should follow her. Heaven only knew whither, and take her in his arms, even were she far, far more lost than now. And again there rang through his soul, forgive, and again his whole being revolted. The packet of letters which he had thrust into his breast weighed him down it was all very well for goswin to say that dorothea must never know that the packet had fallen into his hands why she would ask for it ah he bit his lip he could not think of it he could not forgive his burden grew heavier every moment on a sudden he felt very tired overcome with drowsiness what was that the rustle of a gown the door opened framed by the folds of the pothia, indistinct in the gathering twilight appeared dorothea's tall light figure she had come and he had determined upon nothing nothing he did not stir goss not here she asked in her high twittering voice he tried to summon up his anger against her he told himself that he ought to strike her kill her but he was as if paralyzed he could not stir He trembled in every limb. She did not perceive it, and she could not distinguish his features in the darkness. So much the better, she exclaimed. I am so glad of a quiet, cozy evening with you. Do you want to please me, Otto? Come with me now to Ulz and Dine, and then let us go to the theater. Will you? She came up to him. He had arisen, and the fresh sweetness of her feminine nature seemed to envelop him. She put both her hands on his shoulders and nestled close to him. Will you? she murmured again. He put his arms round her and kissed her twice as he never had kissed her before, with a tenderness in which there was a mixture of rage and glowing frantic passion. Twice he kissed her, and then he suddenly became aware of what he was doing. He thrust her away. What is the matter? she asked, startled. Nothing. But something is the matter. I tell you, no. He hurled the words in her face, as it were, and stamped his foot. Go, get ready. She lingered for a moment and then left the room. He looked after her. Goswin's state of mind was indescribable. He hastily changed his uniform and made ready for the dinner. His nerves were quivering with a dread that he could not explain. He never can bring himself to get a divorce. He said to himself and if he forgives disgust seemed fairly to choke him he took shame to himself for having suggested such a course to otto for a moment he had no right to despise otto the old family affection for his brother revived in him in full force as soon as he was dressed he belied his usual spartan habits by sending for a droschke it would give him time to stop for a moment at dorothea's lodgings to see what was going on there the monotonous jogging of the vehicle soothed his nerves his thoughts began to stray as it turned into Molke's street the drosky moderated its speed and at the same instant a dull sound as of the excited voices of a crowd struck upon his ear he looked out of the carriage window upon a close throng of human beings the vehicle stopped he sprang out there was a crowd before the house occupied by his sister-in-law shoulder to shoulder men were pushing eagerly forward a smothered murmur made itself heard now and then a cynical speech fell distinctly on the ear or a burst of laughter that died away without an echo mingled with the curses of coachmen who could not make their way through the mass of humanity crowding there in the pale march twilight through which the glare of the lanterns shone yellow and dreary At first, he could not get to the house, but the crowd soon made way for his officer's uniform. He rang the bell loudly. Some time passed before the door was opened for him. Measures had evidently been taken to baffle the curiosity of the crowd. The door of Dorothea's apartments, however, was open. He hurried onward, finding at first no one to detain him or to give him any information. In the cozy little room, now brilliantly lighted where he had left his brother stood dorothea evidently dressed to go out in a grey gown and a bonnet trimmed with pale pink roses her cheeks ashy pale her face hard and set in a frightful unnatural smile what has happened cried goswin she tried to reply but the words would not come the smile grew broader and her eyes glowed her face recalled to him the evening at the countess when she looked round after her song and found herself the only woman in the room one or two persons had made their way into the room goswin ordered them out with an imperious air of command where is he he asked hoarsely. she pointed mutely to a door he entered it was her sleeping room airy bright luxurious and there at the foot of the bed lay a dark figure face downwards with outstretched arms Two officials, one of whom was writing something in a notebook, were in the room. The servant told him it had been entirely unexpected. When Her Excellency came home, she had exchanged a few words with her baron, and had then gone to dress for the theatre. Her baron had gone into the other room to write a note, and then, while Her Excellency was in the cello, putting on her gloves, they had heard a shot. Her Excellency had been the first to find him. On the table lay two notes, one to Goswin, the other to Dorothea. The contents of Dorothea's, Goswin never knew. In his own note, there was nothing save, Dear Gos, I have forgiven. Otto. Yes, he had forgiven, but his life had paid the forfeit. End of chapter 17